Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA-certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Welcome to the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, in this episode, I am privileged and honored to have on the on the show as a guest, uh, my associate pastor, Pastor Nathan Clark. Uh, Nathan has been serving at Stonington Baptist Church for many, many years, and I have been privileged to uh, get to know him uh, in the last several year, uh, in the last year and a few months, and I'm so thankful for him and his heart for ministry and his uh, passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as it is seen in the local church. And that's what exactly what we talk about in this episode. Uh, we just dive in talking about uh, what is the sort of lifeblood and the legacy of a local church minister and pastor. We also talk about the very pivotal and I would say significant practice of a preacher to preach to themselves and uh, really internalize the message that they're called to proclaim to others, proclaim it to themselves first. Uh, I think there's a quote from Paul Tripp uh, who is talking about uh, this very thing in his book Dangerous Calling, where he talks about how the ne- the importance and the necessity of, of private personal worship uh, always precedes what we see on the public platform. Uh, What is proclaimed from the pulpit must always uh, find its origination uh, in the prayer closet, so to speak. And we talk a little bit about that and and just local church ministry in a love for Jesus. And I think that's what's very evident uh, in talking to Pastor Nathan. Even when I first met Pastor Nathan, is just a love for Jesus and a desire to see others come to that same love of Jesus. And I think that's what you're going to get to see uh, a glimpse of as Nathan shares his story, his story of how he came to faith, and also how that faith has uh, grown uh, and evolved uh, over the years as he's uh, been in ministry for the sake of Christ. So I hope you'll listen and enjoy as we uh, seek to honor Jesus and to be enriched in Jesus in this episode. Enjoy. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today, Pastor Nathan. Um, if you can, just introduce yourself and who you are and uh, how you how you came to faith in Jesus. Yeah, sure. Glad to, glad to be here and help, Brad. Um, my name is 
Nathan Clark, and as you know, I grew up right here in this very church in yeah. which I minister now. Uh, my parents attended here, my grandparents attended here on both sides of my family. And uh, it was through this local church that I came to know Christ. Uh, just a little bit about uh, my family. My, my um, father and mother came to Christ around the same, around the same time. And then after I was born, of course, they brought me here from the time I was able to be carried in the door. And, and, and then I, I came to know Christ at a very young age. I don't remember a date. And the reason I don't is because I was, I was completely alone when I did so. I remember very clearly being alone in my parents' house. I'm sure I wasn't alone when you come to realize my age. But I was alone in the room. And I just began to think about the things that I had been learning about about the gospel and about Christ and about myself. And so I I just knelt down on the floor. I remember this strong feeling that I was a sinner. I remember this strong uh, realization that someday I was going to die and I wanted to go to heaven. And there was my parents had a big patterned rug on the on the floor of our living room and it had flower floral patterns throughout. And I remember thinking, well, I guess the best place to pray would be in the middle of the floral pattern. <laughs> and so I, I remember getting down on my knees and bowing down in the center of that floral pattern of that rug and praying and asking Christ to save me. Hmm. No idea. I didn't tell anybody. I have no idea of the timing of, of that. Until years later, I asked my parents, you know, just trying to get a feel for this, when, when was that? And my dad told me, he said, I replaced that rug in 1978, <laughs> which would have me at the oldest being three years old. Hmm. And, and that's nothing to commend myself. I look at that and I think that was a local church that, hmm. that taught me what it is to be saved. I'm sure, it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't deep, I'm sure it wasn't elaborate, but I knew enough to know that I needed a savior. It's a, it's a commendation to parents who, mm. who took me to church and taught me the truth and prayed with me and grandparents and, and Good News Club teachers and Sunday school teachers that, that made sure I, I knew what I needed to know. Mm. And, and that really has had a huge impact on the way I view the local church and, and the ministries that we, that we have here. You know, I, I look at these we, we, we sometimes call it nursery school workers. <laughs> and yet, I, I will remind them sometimes, you know, I came to faith because of people yeah. like you. Yeah. Don't just play with blocks. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is real stuff. Yeah. And you, can, you have the power to change lives right here. Yeah. That's so. kingdom work in, in with twos and threes. <laughs> yes. They're, they're kingdom workers as much as any other Sunday school teacher or preacher for that matter. <laughs> Ab absolutely. I, most people that come to faith early in an early age have time where they rededicate their life. I didn't. Hmm. Now, certainly I grew. Did I understand everything that salvation included at yeah. that point? No, I still don't. Um, at 44, I still don't understand the miracle of <laughs> rebirth. Yeah. But, like I said, we, I knew enough. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. But then, I always had a sense that I wanted to do something great for God mm. and I did not know what that was I initially thought it would be perhaps in missions and, but I wasn't sure I graduated from our local high school here Shikolomi High School in 1993 and at the, at the top of my class and I was quite embarrassed to tell people that I wanted to go to Bible college mm. I thought that was while my friends were all going to Drexel and Yale and Harvard, I was going to this little little college in Lancaster <laughs> County, and I thought that was somehow be looked down upon. Hmm. So I quietly slinked off to Bible college, <laughs> not really knowing why I was going. And um, So you felt the call to ministry at a young age then? I felt the call to ministry actually as a result of our missions conference that we held here at the church every, hmm. every spring. Um, we would have a week-long series of different missionaries come and, yeah. and present their work. And it was through those missions conferences that I 
realized that God had something special, unique yeah. for me, as he does everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I felt that it was probably in the area of ministry somewhere. I graduated from Bible college convinced of two things, I believed at the hmm. time, two strong beliefs. One was that ministry is done best by lay people. Hmm. I still believe that. I still believe that there's there's definitely a place for professional ministry, and it, it's essential. Um, at the same time, it puts up walls between us and the average Joe on the street. Hmm. Uh, we, we had just been chit-chatting about baseball yeah, and sitting in the stands and watching our kids play baseball or coaching baseball. And I will generally try to avoid the subject of what do you do? Hmm. Um, I'll, people ask eventually, what do you do for a living? And I'll, I'll say, well, I, I work with kids. And if they press, they'll say, well, where do you work with kids? And I'll say, in nonprofit work. And if they continue to press, eventually I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. And so often the conversation stops. Hmm. And they'll just quietly excuse themselves and go talk to someone else. <laughs> um, and that, that sometimes bothers me. What? Well- why do you think that is, though? Just to stay on that for a second. That's curious. I think maybe there's... Initially, I used to think it's because they don't know how to relate. Mm. But yet, we were relating previously just fine. And I wonder if it's suddenly that they feel a sense of guilt when they let a curse word slip. <laughs> or talk about something inappropriate. And they're just afraid that somehow I'm going to judge. Do you think that goes back to sort of like the veneration of priests and bishops, so to speak, from older denominations or even denominations that are still around that have that sense of almost... There's like a separation between the, quote, regular church person and the, quote, vocational church person, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And and that's very possible, especially in an area like this where you have so much Catholicism. Mm, Yeah. I... I, I've struggled with that question. I've asked myself that many times. I don't. I don't really know. Hmm. But I've seen it happen more often, and too often, to know that it's <laughs> it's real. It's yeah. Real. Um, but then other times, you know, that opens up doors. Yeah. And when they have a need, they will call the the guy that they sat in the bleachers with, who's hmm. also a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> but, so. So I was convinced of that, that ministry is done best by lay people. I was also convinced of this, and that was I would never, ever under any circumstance become a pastor. (laughs) Uh, So obviously I clung to the one belief, the second belief, um, not quite so much. (laughs) But so I, I graduated, and I did a lot. I call these my Peter years. I went home. I was not quite married yet. I'll be married in another year. Trish had, my wife Trish had one more year of schooling. So I lived at home with my parents for that year and um, worked in the family propane gas business. And I think about Peter, when after Peter had walked with the Lord for three years and seen such incredible things and been called to a life of, of discipleship to Christ, he Jesus died, there was a resurrection, the ascension, and Peter said, well, not not the ascension yet, but Peter says, I'm going fishing. (laughs) I think all the excitement was over, and he went back to what was familiar, Hmm. what was comfortable, Hmm. to what he knew, and he just said, I'm going fishing. I picture Peter was probably comfortable there in that boat, <clears throat> but probably miserable. <laughs> and that's largely where I was. I loved those that decade of business. Hmm. I loved getting to meet and know thousands of people in this area. I loved the ministry that I could have to them. Um, but every single day... Every day, whether I was lacing up my boots or driving a truck or turning a wrench or whatever it was in that business, there was a there was this nagging feeling that there was something else. 
I felt God saying, I have something else for you. Mm. Not, not better. Not something better. Uh, I don't think ministry, like pastoral ministry, is necessarily a better vocation than hmm. that yeah. of the carpenter or the factory worker or the truck driver. Wherever God calls us, that's the best place to be. Yes. But I, I had the sense that he was saying, I have something else for you. There was a professor in Bible college who mentioned this one time in a group of pastoral students, and he said, men, if God lays his hand on you, don't shake it off. Hmm. And for 10 years, I just kept thinking, I shook off the hand of God. Hmm. Now, all through that time, I was involved in ministry here at the church, volunteering, teaching adults, and filling the pulpit when needed, and, and working with teens, and doing youth ministry here, and loving every minute of it. But there was just that, increasingly, that, that nagging desire to do more, but being unable to do so because of work obligations. And then, of course, then we had children, and we had uh, eventually had four children, but at that point we had two, and family demands, and just things like that. And, and the words of Jesus constantly rang through my mind, where he said, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> you will either love one and hate the other, you'll despise one, you'll be run to, cling to the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I felt that tension hmm. of not like money was my idol, but I had to earn a living where what I wanted to do was serve people, hmm. serve God. Yeah. And I just felt that, that tension very strongly. Then in 2000, long story short, in 2004 we sold the family business. That was hard to do. I did not know what I was going to do except I knew that my father was going to retire, and he asked if I would buy the business, and if I would buy it, that that would definitely be the end of volunteer ministry. And so I actually chose to not buy the business so that I could continue to do volunteer ministry. And it was around that same time then that the church came to me, and they said, we, we feel the need to call a full-time youth pastor uh, to this church. And I, I was so relieved. I said, yes, okay, <laughs> I will help you find him. I, I know what we need. And, and they, I remember it was, it was uh, one of our deacons at the time. He said, no, no, you don't, you don't get this. We would, we'd like you to apply for, to be the, the, the pastor. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up here. <laughs> so people will sometimes ask, how long have you been at Stonington Baptist Church? And I'll say, oh, 44 years. And <laughs> Because that, that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we've been doing full-time ministry here now since 2007. Hmm. And all, many years of volunteer work before that. Hmm. So through that story, I would basically say, and rightfully and joyfully say, that you are uh, essentially a product of local church faithfulness, which is really, I think, unique, but really also a testament to uh, the this local body of believers that they've had this steadfastness and in pouring into people. And then this is you, I think are, are a really good, uh, sort of return on investment, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's why I'm so passionate about, yeah. about Christian education here in the local church. Hmm. Um, this is important work we do. Yeah. And, and we just can't, we can't, think light of it. We can't treat it lightly. <laughs> no. And we can't diminish its importance. Yeah. I, I'm sort of similar. You know, I grew up in the church. Both my dad and my granddad were pastors. So being a product of local church ministry is something that I, I cherish too. But I also, um, I've said this to people too, that that familiarity with church, I think, is sometimes a little bit dangerous <laughs> just because you can that old saying is true familiarity familiarity breeds contempt and if you so maybe let's let me ask you that is how have you been able to not keep the freshness alive that sounds like a marriage but just keep your your spirituality your spiritual life with Jesus and the Holy Spirit vitalized 
with so much familiarity surrounding you. Um, because there could be, and I've felt this too when I was growing up, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like the Lord led me to to relocate in different times of my life, is I needed that freshness, that, that sort of rejuvenated sort of feeling of being in a place where I really have to apply my faith. Because sometimes it's so easy just to be like, um, I could just kind of coast in my faith because I don't really have to try to be faithful around these certain people, if that makes sense. Does yes. that make sense? <laughs> yes. yes, it does. And I know you and I have talked about this before. That's that's one of the reasons it's so important to have a personal walk with God yeah. in the scriptures. One of the other things that's both a blessing and a curse about the local church is that they're they're very organic organizations. <laughs> they, they shift and they move. And, yeah. and yes, there are many of the same people that were here when I was a child that still see me as little Nathan, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people that have no idea that I was ever anything except mm-hmm. one of the past one of the pastors at Stunnington Baptist Church, mm. and and so that's been good. Uh, leaving this place and attending conferences and camps and has been a great encouragement and blessing as well to keep things mm. fresh, get outside voices, and see other ideas. Um, because that is the downside of, of pastoral ministry. You. In, in a local church, you you only see what your church does, hmm. and and sometimes it's good to get outside of these walls and see how do other people do it. Not that we copy them, <laughs> but there there are good ideas and to be shared. I feel the same way in terms of like um, whenever I go back to my dad's church, people always see me as Pastor Gray's kid. <laughs> I'm a PK yes. for life, <laughs> um, but. I think through that, too, is, yeah, people always see that to a certain degree. But also, like you were talking about, having that personal relationship, that's one thing that even if I've been, you know, really new to vocational ministry, so to speak, is almost separating those two, the public with your private worship, the public ministry with your private worship, because what people will see, I think most often, is your, you know, your deep heartfelt, passionate worship of God in your private life, that will bleed out into your public ministry life. When, yes. And it, when that's seen, that's when they, they can really see you mean it, and you're not just kind of going through the motions, so to speak. Yes, I, I read, read an article um, very recently, and I'll probably blotch this <laughs> quote, but I, I, I jotted it down on a note, on a piece of, on a sticky note, and put it on my computer. And it mm. says, "I refuse to allow my public passion to exceed my private devotion." Oh yeah, yeah. And, and that that stuck with me. <laughs> I have to be careful to make sure that my private devotion matches that which I'm publicly presenting. Mm. That it's never fake. <laughs> yeah. And there's that. There's that tension. Yeah. Because we have to be on. Yeah. And we might have a bad Sunday morning <laughs> and we have to set to the pulpit and yes. lead people in worship and and that's necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't just say, no, I don't feel it today and decide <laughs> to sit in the pew or stay yeah. home. Yeah. But that better not be the, the habit. Hmm. There are times when I feel that perhaps it's necessary to just push through and, and allow God to use you even if you're not yeah. feeling it. But it should Never. If it becomes a habit, then that's a problem. Mm, yeah, definitely. I like that, and I've been, I've been, really moved by that. It's just um, there's a quote too that I I came across, and I've been thinking about lately. Is is not treating the Bible as a sermon manual, <laughs> mm. uh, because I think that for a quote professional Christians, <laughs> pastors, vocational ministers, or whatever. It can so be so easy to just kind of treat it that way instead of really internalizing and and remembering that, you know, well, this is something I think that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about, like you are prognosticating on things that you or yourself are not practicing. And, yes. and I think that applies to pastors very, very wholeheartedly is that they often can kind of lean into um, just treating these things as a manual of sermons to spit out instead of a heartfelt 
<laughs> message from their savior that saves them first. And uh, I, I've just been really moved by that, just to that I need everything that I'm preaching uh, just as much, probably if not more, than anyone else that I'm ever ever going to preach to. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I rely heavily on on radio broadcasts and podcasts hmm. to listen to when I get in the car. Yeah. To listen to whatever preacher happens to be on the radio or <laughs> when I'm on my walk in the morning to listen to you know certain podcasts and messages because we need to be preached to also. Yes, yes. Um, you don't get that pastoral leadership, <laughs> but you, we, we, need to, we need the Word of God preached and to listen to that also. Yeah. So reflecting on your longevity and ministry, so to speak, how would you say, I want to use the word evolved, even though that's, you know, some people will, you know, not like that word, but how has your faith or your, your ministry sort of perspective evolved over time, if at all, or like, how has it developed through the years of experience and learning what works and what doesn't work and how this could be better applied and et cetera, et cetera. I, I remember very clearly when I started here, Pastor Doug, who had been my my pastor for most of my childhood life and adult life, that first week in the office when I came in, he, he said, I have two things to tell you. Number one, you will never walk in this building the same way again. Hmm. And that's been true. Uh, yes, I walk in this building to worship and to fellowship, but it's also a place of work. Mm. And, and that's a subtle difference that's just unavoidable, I believe. He also told me, he said, you will never see these people the same way again. Hmm. And what he meant by that was that every person has skeletons in their closet. Every person has their struggles. And these people that I looked up to as great saints also had their struggles. Hmm. And... People tend to fall into either one of two categories. Either they are great sinners <laughs> and they have they recognize their need of grace, or they feel that they're not and they every it's everybody else that needs grace. <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to struggle with the latter. Um, to to deal with people. Spiritual pride is a very difficult thing for me <laughs> to to deal with. They're, those are the most difficult people for me to minister to. Yeah. Uh, but you know, It's made me very much aware of our need for grace, everyone's need for grace. Hmm. We, we, all, we all struggle, we all fall short, and the most godly senior saint has, at least almost all of them, have had deep struggles, hmm. uh, deep pains, deep wounds, and those are those are not curses necessarily. They they're great bless. They can be used for great blessing. Uh, they're they're great opportunities to to minister. Um, it, it, it's it's a saying of mine that I, I what's well, not my saying, but it's one that I I believe there's a lot of truth in, and that is that the effective minister walks with a limp, hmm. and those wounds help us to minister to other people, hmm. and realizing that. Yes, I struggle too. I think about the you know, children of Israel as they walked around the, <laughs> the, the wilderness. It, it was said of them, all Israel was under the cloud. They all had divine guidance. They all had divine provision as they received uh, the manna every day. They all received great blessing from God. And yet, scriptures say with most of them, God was not well pleased. Mm. You know, and so... I've learned to never look at a person and just look down on them for their struggles or look down on them for their sin. Hmm. Um, but by the grace of God, there go I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and if, if these Israelites who walked around the wilderness and physically saw God leading them in a pillar of fire and a cloud, a cloud by by day and a fire by night and they, they saw God provide for them, they saw the miracles, and yet they still rebelled. 
There's, there's nothing that I'm not capable of. There's no sin that I could not also fall into. Mm. And, and we have the opportunity of walking besides people as they stumble and fall into those things too. Mm. And I guess I would say what, what has evolved is my judgment of people. Mm. I've just had more and more compassion for, for people who do horrible things because I can too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that capacity is within me. Uh, I, I don't grow, as I grow older, I don't become more comfortable in my walk with the Lord. I, mm. I actually grow more fearful mm. of the damage that I can do and just how destructive sin and, and mm. enemy's forces are. I like that because it reminds me of this. Oh, I forget where I read it too, <laughs> but someone said that everyone is about two to three decisions away from <laughs> making the headline news, <laughs> and I think that that's really true. Unless you see yourself having that capability, you will be judgmental, and you will have yes. sort of this third person like I'm outside of this gritty reality. Yes. And instead, I think like what you're talking to and what I've strived to keep in my head is that this is me and I need I need this grace and I'm two to three decisions away from making the headline news. I need this message. And um, I don't know, that's just a really palpable thing when that comes to grip. Oh, the other thing I was going to say as it, I was trying to get my thought <laughs> was um, I, I've had my faith kind of develop in the same way in the sense that you know how sometimes everyone thinks that their life is like a movie and that they're the main actor and like but they're also the director and they're also the editor and so they can just do everything they want in their quote movie of their life and that makes everyone else like background actors that don't really have a history but like the thing that I've thought about you know like driving on the interstate or just driving around or just seeing people in a grocery store is is that everyone likely thinks the same way. Yes. <laughs> so they think that they're the center main actor, actress of the movie. But just in that sort of reality, uh, thinking about everybody else has so many more difficulties and struggles and worries and anxieties that you like, you would never know or ever think of. And so I, me, I've tried to in the same way, just extend like, so many more degrees of mercy for the person that, you know, cuts me off or the person that cuts in line or I don't know, just the person that gives me the finger when I'm driving. <laughs> like, I don't know what they're going through. Um, I want to react, but uh, I don't know what they've just like, what kind of life has preceded that moment exactly. for them. And I don't know. That's just one of, one of the simplest, most simple things that has ever has statements that has ever helped me in, in dealing with people is this everyone does what they do for a reason that makes sense to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, it may not be right, but it makes sense to <laughs> it does. them. I cut them off because my agenda is very important to yes, me it is. right now. And That's very true. Just extending a lot of grace in dealing with yeah. people. Yeah. I, I used to be very... I, I was less patient. Hmm. I was less patient than I am now. Do kids do that to you? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. I'm holding out hope that I become more patient, too, as I go older. <laughs> kids are the ultimate tester of patience. Uh, but, yeah, great blessings. Yes. Well, so kind of transitioning a little bit. Um, I've just been through this seminary class it's a survey of the New Testament. Um, the latter half of it really just all the epistles, the Pauline epistles and the other letters, mm -hmm. and then uh, Revelation. And um, thinking about those books specifically, what are, and this is a loaded question, I know that, but what is something or some things that really just like like the that rise to the top, rise to the surface, so to speak. When you're reading those works, like what is what are something that really stands out to you? It's funny you ask that 
because it's something that's somewhat recent in the last maybe six months that I've been hmm. just considering and thinking over. I never, I always struggled with the doctrine of imputed sin. Hmm. I always thought that was so unfair. <laughs> Adam sins, the world is condemned. That just, I accept it, I believe it, but I wrestled with it. <laughs> And lately, I have come to say that is almost my favorite doctrine because it's by that same reasoning, that same logic, the consistency, because one man's sin was sufficient to condemn all, one man's righteousness is sufficient to save all. Amen. And, and I'm so thankful now for the doctrine of imputed sin because yeah. with it comes imputed righteousness. Yes. <laughs> As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all all shall be made alive. And that that theory is, the theory, that, that, that thinking is throughout the, the Gospels, especially in the Pauline letters, especially in Romans. But that's where I've really been sinking my teeth into. It's mm. what I've been just actually holding on to. Yeah. I'm thankful for Adam's sin. Hmm. Because it sets the stage for yeah. Jesus' righteousness to yes. be placed on my account. Yes. And so whether I like it or not, God is consistent. Yes. <laughs> He's entirely consistent. He's yes. totally fair. And what I used to see as an injustice to me, I now see as my only hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's my only hope <laughs> uh, because I cannot be righteous on my own. Well, and that's a doctrine double imputation, so to speak, is a doctrine I think that, well, for me, I cherish it very, very much, but um, also is one that can, ha I think, has led perhaps modern scholarship to sort of divide, you know, Jesus's teachings from Pauline teaching. You know, mm. there's this school of thought that Paul's gospel is a little bit different than yes. Jesus's gospel, but and yeah, Jesus doesn't talk about double imputation, but <laughs> he doesn't do so, I should say, explicitly. But if you read the Gospels and you don't come away with the fact that everything that Jesus is doing is for your righteousness, meaning the righteousness of the people that were right in front of him, I mean, that's what Paul, that's where he gets all of that from. He's he like, taught it, yeah, he lived it. <laughs> he, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And Paul's just like, hey, this is what that meant. He's just putting it in, you know, written form, or perhaps he was even preaching it as well. Just, hey, all that, this is what it really means. And this is why we can look back at scripture. And here's the proof. Here's the evidence. Here's the gospel. Um, and that's what I love is, is a renewed sort of fresh, just the gospel of Paul is not different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one message that we have this representative, as you said, like, if you don't like being represented in Adam, then you cannot agree with the representation yes. of Christ. And just I just love to help Paul. He's always championing that message. Yes. <laughs> All his letters, they deal with that. <laughs> he has a really high Christology. <laughs> and uh, you can see it, not just, you know, Colossians, you can go to and read about Christology or whatever. But every letter, I feel like, is just, is is hammering home imputation and arsons on him and his righteousness on us and such like that. That great exchange is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Best deal I ever heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, the other thing that, well, the thing that kind of stands out for me is it's almost like, so I, I love the book of Acts, and I love how in Acts you can look at all of the apostles' sermons, and they're almost all dealing with what they were <laughs> sort of coping with at the time, which was Jesus's ascension, but also the fact of Jesus's resurrection. So all of their sermons were like, hey, resurrection was real, and he's really the real deal. And especially those early sermons from Peter um, is just hammering home, the resurrection was real, and we believe it, and this is what the church believes, and all that kind of stuff. And I think transitioning, when you transition into the letters, it's almost like, because of that, here's all of these things that come along with it. And so it's almost... You can't have, obviously it's the Bible, you can't have one without the other, but it's it's so um, ingenious, I might say, just to sort of see the apostles' thoughts. Like, 
here's this reality and here's all the reasons or here's all the, you know, after effects, the aftermath of what the church believes, what the Christian believes, what that means for the Christian life and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just, that's why I think we can spend so much time in the letters as a quote, New Testament church, um, because we're still dealing with the same realities they were dealing with. <laughs> yes. And, and when, like you said, Peter preached that sermon in Acts, opening chapters of Acts, where he preached that sermon in Acts, Acts 2? Uh, yeah, Acts 3? Yeah, 2 and 3. Like, I, yeah. Um, he preaches on the resurrection in a, in a location where Jesus' tomb is scant blocks away. <laughs> yeah. You don't believe me that he's resurrected? Let's take a let's take a walk. <laughs> yeah. Let's go down the street and see the tomb. And it's <laughs> empty. Let's talk to the people. Let's find the guards. They're here. They live among us. You you know these people. Hmm. And and nobody questioned it. Yeah. They they knew. This this was spoken of freely and widely and openly. <laughs> Something big happened. <laughs> yeah. And and it had a, a huge impact on, on their life and, and the world, thankfully. That, and I love the fact that what you see in the apostles' letters, preach, uh, sermons, etc., is it, it's, it's a cliche, I think, sometimes to say that um, everything is about Jesus. <laughs> but then when you read the apostles, everything really is about Jesus. They always go back to that event, the event specifically the resurrection, but just all that led up to it, it the crucifixion and all those things, Jesus's uh, whole ministry, they always point back to that. And, the, and that's when they say, now because of that, therefore, you know, all throughout Paul's yes. writing. And it's so evident to me that they were, <laughs> they were sold out for this person. And that's to me is another, you know, just enriching thing is that I don't, there's no way that they would be that sold out to that person unless all the things that precipitated that weren't real and factual. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you can go talk to people <laughs> that saw the resurrected Lord. You can go talk to them right now. They're still alive. They're still here. And Peter is, says, you know, like, we saw it. We touched him. We, we were there. And it, it, to me, it just goes to show that there's no way that this was, you know, a hoax or a conspiracy or a man-made thing. Um, it was divine. And they're, they're going to the nth degree to sort of uh, evoke that and convey that to their churches at the time, but also to us 2,000-odd years later, that this is real and believe it. <laughs> and they gave their life for it. Yeah, yes. Lewis Champion, the, the liar, lunatic, le or... Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, the trilemma. <laughs> the trilemma. Yeah. But I believe there's a fourth possibility that he, he'd hmm. neglected, and that is perhaps he was legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yet, if so, as, as you said, these writers, these people who lived it and saw it, they all died for this hmm. legend. Yeah, yeah. Which... Indicates this is no legend. Yeah, this is no mere myth. Yeah, <laughs> this is reality. Yes, and and uh, he truly is a living Lord. Hmm. Now, um, s reflecting on your your Bible college sort of experiences or whatever you would say is, what would you say is a one of the best benefits of a class like this that just takes a really big, broad survey of, because there's a lot of stuff that you really can't get in depth with. Uh, you can't really handle and, and really kind of sink your teeth into when you're spending this short amount of time with such a <laughs> big depth of scripture. Um, what would you say is like the most valuable <clears throat> component of a class like that? You know, as pastors and preachers and Bible teachers, we can become very myopic. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we get fixed on words and word <laughs> studies and nuances and parsing out verbs and diagramming sentences. And those things are all appropriate and important. But as we look at the scriptures under a microscope sometimes, there's tremendous insight that can be gained from a single word. Mm. 
but we also must remember to back up and see the big picture. Yeah, yeah. And you know, beginning in Genesis three fifteen, where the promise is made of a coming deliverer that will that will crush mm-hmm. the serpent's head. From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, where death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, the message is consistent from beginning to end. It's a promise made in Genesis 3. It's a promise delivered in Revelation 20. And in between is where we live. We, We understand where we came from. We know where we're going. How do we live in the middle? And how do, how do we influence our culture and, and help them see that there is a heaven to be gained, there is a hell to be shunned? Hmm. How do we live consistently in a way that will advance that purpose and, yeah. and build that kingdom? Yeah. And so we need to back up sometimes and, and see the big picture and see where we've come from and see where we're going, if, no, if for no other reason than for hope. Hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't know how to preach a sermon without the big picture, a, a funeral sermon without mm. the big picture. Yes. Those that are grieving need to know there's more to life than right now. Mm. And, and that, that, that's where I think there's great blessing in, in surveys and, and just understanding God's story. It's this huge meta narrative from beginning to end of how he is going to do his work. Hmm. Uh, and we, we, as pastors at least, I especially tend to get bogged down in little details and words <laughs> and verbs. Yeah, yeah. And so I find that very helpful. Yeah, I, this, I love that idea too. That sort of biblical theol- theological standpoint, so to speak. That you know, of course, the Bible tells one narrative, but it's so for me helpful to to see it. But also too, when you just look at these different letters. And it's so fascinating to me and so um, faith-building, I would say, to kind of get a sort of bird's-eye view of, view of them, and then you realize that they are all saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. That this Jesus guy, he's the serpent crusher, like you said, that was promised in Genesis 3.15, and he's the real king, and he is coming back. And that that hopeful message to people in the first century who were already being... Uh, persecuted severely for what they believed is the same hopeful message that we have now. And that's what is so just amazing is that we can read these letters and come away with the same exact hope. And that's that's the gospel at work. And that's the, the hope of the scriptures coming, uh, coming to roost, so to speak, is that it's the same king, the same serpent crusher that lived and died and rose again, and he's going to come again. And we have that hope as the ch- as the church in the church age, yeah. even still. It, it, it's an old gospel song. Yeah. It's true. I read the back of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. And we have to we have to remind ourselves that we have to remind our people. That. Yeah, and that that's our hope, especially like when like. I think about the letters to Thessalonians, and these were newer Christians. They were newer uh, to the faith, and they're already being tried and persecuted for their faith. And what does Paul hit them with? He hits them with the fact that all of this is going to be resolved in Jesus' return and all that sorts of stuff. He doesn't you know, get into the nitty-gritty of what that's going to look like because he didn't know, or it, I don't even think it was necessary. What was necessary was... This is real. It's going to happen. Just be faithful. Yes. <laughs> and that's what he encourages them with, faithfulness. Yes. <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what I see as really the message of these letters. And even Revelation. I, I, I remember when I first came to Stonington, uh, I was daring enough to preach on Revelation chapter 1 as one of my first sermons. <laughs> and, but I remember doing that specifically because I think – we often view that book as like not a letter as you know a a fortune teller's dream 
But if you read the first three chapters and you read the last chapter, uh, it's very much a letter. <laughs> he ends with a very formal uh, sort of closing remarks that a letter would. And it, of course, he opens with letters to churches. And the whole gist of it I have always come away with is that he, Jesus has got this figured out. And, yes. and we don't have to, quote, make sense of it. Um, the, the saying I always come away with from Revelation is that it, it wasn't written to make us spiritual Nostradamuses, <laughs> that we can figure out what these things mean. It's just there to show us that the sovereign one, the sovereign serpent crusher, <laughs> he's going to come and really finalize his work and that we can be hopeful and faithful uh, in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh- I love Disney stories. We watched the Dis- we watched yeah. Frozen two last night. With, yes, with <laughs> seen it many times. But, <laughs> that old Disney movie Fantasia, hmm. I sometimes think is the way we view Revelate the Book of Revelation. <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah, and we try to figure it out, <laughs> but no, it, it's not Fantasia. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not the Fantasia of the Bible. Yes. It, it That's is, a good way a to real, say it. It is a real letter. Written to real churches made up of real people about yes. a real Lord who will make all things right. Yes. He will win. We will win. Yes. And I don't think that's an oversimplification either. I don't think that's a reduction of the symbolism. Because, of course, there's like symbolism there and things that are there to represent other things and people and places and times and all that kind of stuff. But I think... So you, we can get lost in that. Yes. I think that goes yes. back to your your myopia <laughs> that you were talking about. There's just we can get lost in that minutia, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's when it becomes unfortunate because then the the legacy of Revelation has been let's all try and figure out what this news story means <laughs> in terms of you know end times prophecy, um, and I think that that's kind of re- that's reducing what I think John was commissioned to do when he was commissioned to write to churches uh, for the benefit of their hope, of their steadfastness. And John talks about that right the first parts of the letter. But um, and I think that's that to me is what I see throughout all the letters is that because Paul doesn't always talk about eschatology, but you can see it kind of like brimming throughout his letters that just talking about that Jesus is the king. He talks about that in the pastoral epistles where he talks about how he is the king who has dominion over all things and and may he he sometimes he gets lost in I think it's first Timothy two or one of those chapters where he just gets lost and he almost becomes he writes almost like a decalogue of this prayer and he oh, has yes. just gets really rapturous <laughs> talking about him be glory forever <laughs> amen and amen and all this kind of stuff and it, you can just see it in Paul's it was just right underneath the surface that all of this stuff is going to be resolved and that means that means we can be faithful and we can be hopeful and we can be humble in the moment and I think that's the message he was instilling yes. into those churches. How do you live between? Yeah, <laughs> between the beginning and the end. Yeah, between the cross and his return. How do we live? How do we live? Yeah, yeah. And, and thankfully, you know, he showed us how to live. Yeah. You know, the, why did Jesus have to live thirty-three years before he was sacrificed? Hmm. His sacrifice would have been, I suppose, sufficient had he died as an infant. Hmm. But he lived 33 years to show us. He had, hmm. he had things he wanted to teach us. He lived by example. Yeah. And and I'm so thankful for those yeah. lessons, both verbal lessons and, yeah. and life lessons. As he, We have four men who detailed his every move for <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. And... and uh, just good, good lessons to learn. Mm. So to other seminarians or Bible students that are, and even potential pastors who are either in classes like this or in studies like this, or they're just preparing for ministry or whatever, just what's a, a parting word of advice, so to speak, from um, that you would, that you would kind of derive from these books of the of, of the Bible in the New Testament. Only one? <laughs> no, you can <could, laughs> you can have the Baptist three. 
Well, I, I think there's so much to be learned in, in survey classes. There's so much to be learned in the scriptures. But I also want to remind myself, as well as others, one thing that we cannot learn from a classroom is character. Hmm. I think of the Pharisees. They were experts in the law. Yeah. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They could no doubt. They no doubt knew the Greek much better than we do. <laughs> and yet, what did Jesus say of them? They were a brood of vipers. Mm. They were whitewashed tombs. Mm. And we need to be careful that when we wield the sword of the word that we're that our character matches mm. what we say. Yeah. That we're not just preachers, that we are also pastors who have the heart of shepherds, who mm. care for people where they're at. Mm. Um, That's just that's just one thing. <laughs> uh, I, I I remember as a as a young man as a young Bible college student being very black and white in what I believed hmm. and what was right and what was wrong. And I'm not saying that those things are blurred. There is right. There is wrong. God's word is clear. But sin also has a way of messing things up so <laughs> badly yeah. that sometimes we, we're not left a clear right or a clear wrong answer. Mm. And we just have to look at a situation and try to decide what's best. Mm. I, I have to be, I think of an example, I have to be very careful in the examples that I use, but living and serving in this church my whole life. <laughs> but but here's one that I, I think I can. You know, I think of a... I was always very, very determined in what I believed about divorce and remarriage and and what, what is right there. Until I, I met a family, a couple, who where both of them were divorced, both the man and the woman, and yet they, they got together and they lived together for a decade or more, and had children together and then they came to the church and wanted to be married hmm. and I wasn't left with an option we weren't left with an option of what you know return to your former husband or wife <laughs> make it right reconcile well they had their own family together hmm. and they're you know sometimes we're just left with what can we do here that it that would be the best solution that would still honor God, even though it may not be <laughs> what He intended. Yeah, and um, so that's just a parting, parting word. But the, the last thing I would say would be the words of a one of my favorite professors: "Is no, <laughs> no why you minister." Hmm. I, the words that this man gave me one time are what's kept me going. And he, he said to me one time, he said, men, he was talking to a group of pastoral students. He said, men, don't do your ministry because you say you love people. When he said that, I was shocked. I, I thought, what do you mean? I have to love people. Um, People is why I do what I do. I, I, he said, no. He said, do your ministry because you love God. Hmm. Not because, not motivated by a love for people. Hmm. Because people will take your very best, your best intentions, your hardest work, and they will, they will despise you for it. They will say bad things about you. They will... They will hurt. And if you're doing your ministry because you say you love people, you will quit. Mm. Do the work that God's called you to do because you love God first. Yes. Love for people is important. I'm not diminishing that. <laughs> but let it not be your primary motivator. Yeah. 
Let your primary motivation be, God has called me here, and I will be faithful until he calls me somewhere else. And, and that, that is many times I've said, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to fishing. But those words have kept me going many times. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. I really appreciate uh, you being open and talking and willing to uh, chat with me for a little bit. And uh, uh, thanks so much for uh, uh, for being honest. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for having me, Pastor. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks so much for Pastor Nathan for being a guest on today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe to this show. You can do so on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you're feeling gracious today, you can leave me a review. The five-star ones are greatly appreciated. I want to thank you as always for listening, though, and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you guys on the next episode. Blessings. Blessings.